This is C-SPAN's The Weekly. I'm Steve Scully in Washington. It is part of the U.S. Constitution, and it's the way we elect our president. But why do we have the Electoral College? And should it be eliminated? With the Democratic presidential candidates calling for every vote to count, it's now part of the political debate in the 2020 elections. Ahead on the program, our conversation with Van Newkirk II. He's written extensively about America's electoral process for the Atlantic, and we'll get some historical perspective from Harvard professor Alex Kazar. He's the author of a soon-to-be-published book, Why Do We Still Have the Electoral College? Many of us learned about the process through Schoolhouse Rock, which is where we begin. I'm going to send your vote to college when you vote for president. And if you'll let me share some knowledge, you'll understand this big event. The folks who wrote our Constitution had the idea for this plan. And it's been used in our elections. Since our government began When you pull down all my levers For the person of your choice You're also choosing state electors Who will have the final voice They're called the Electoral College And they'll meet to stipulate Who the voters have selected To be the winner in each state from ABC's Schoolhouse Rock and Van Newkirk II. Boy, that brings back memories, doesn't it? <laughs> yes, it does. This is Schoolhouse Rock is how I learned about civics. So this was great. Let's spend some time to talk about the Electoral College. And let's go back to the founders. What was their intent? I think if you look at the basic structures of our government, how they were built in the Constitution, how they were elaborated on in the Bill of Rights, and, and you look at going back to the to the debates our founders were having on uh, the shape of government, essentially they built two big structures that uh, provided, that made the country a republic and not a pure democracy. And the one was the Senate, and that was a they gave every state uh, two senators and it's not based on representation at all. And the other was the, the, the Electoral College electing the president. They actually envisioned a system that doesn't quite work the way it works today, which is basically each elector, each elector votes for, for the most part, who the state votes for. They envisioned a system that was actually a lot more flexible in which electors could be more faithless and could, if uh, the people decided to vote for a demagogue, could vote against that demagogue. And the Electoral College has actually, uh, over time, basically taken, the, taken on the role of doing the opposite. Um, the electors tend to vote uh, for who the people vote for, regardless of who they choose to vote for. Um, and so I think it's, there's been some inertia built up in the system over the past couple of decades. And, of course, in American history, we have seen only a handful of cases in which the president loses the popular vote but wins the Electoral College vote. Significantly, though, the last two Republican presidents, George W. Bush in 2000 and now Donald Trump in 2016, winning the electoral vote but not winning the popular vote. Yeah. If you look at these, there's been five times when a president has lost a popular vote and won the Electoral College vote. And all five of them have been pretty controversial. You've got the Trump beating uh, Hillary Clinton, which is a really big one. You've got the Bush v. Gore, which almost changed, which we got a 
Supreme Court challenge of that actual vote. And you go all the way back to 1876, the Compromise of 1876, which many people still don't believe was a legitimate presidential outcome when, when Rutherford B. Hayes won that election, despite winning, despite losing the popular vote by three percentage points. Uh, we've had these moments, and the fact that we've had these moments, I think, actually indicates how charged this issue is, because every time it's happened, it's engendered a serious debate about what we want the structure of this government to be. And we could see it happen again in the foreseeable future. I think it's going to be the norm in the foreseeable foreseeable future. It's uh, You look at the way demographics are working, the way people are moving to the South and the West, the way the country's becoming more urbanized, and... That means these really small states like Wyoming are going to become even more powerful as we move on. Uh, I think if Republicans are going to win the presidency, it's likely that they're going to lose a popular vote and win the Electoral College vote in the future. If you go back to the 2000 election and the recount, the Supreme Court decision, Bush v. Gore, which essentially pushed the results into December, Al Gore conceding the election and then saying this to the country and to those would-be electors deciding who would be the next president. Of course, it would be George W. Bush. Here's Vice President Gore. Together, let us testify to the truth that our country is more important than victory. Both Governor Bush and I should also continue to urge our supporters to tone down their rhetoric and lift up our respect for democracy. Some of my own supporters have emphasized the fact that we won the national popular vote. But our Constitution requires victory in the Electoral College. I completely disavow any effort to persuade electors to switch their support from the candidate to whom they are pledged. I will not accept the support of any elector pledged to Governor Bush. How significant was that? Well, there are three pieces to that concession that are interesting to me. One is he said, you know, we have to preserve democracy. The Electoral College is not a democratic process, which is that's interesting to me. But also, I think if Gore had gotten a couple of more constitutional law scholars, more historians to consult with, he would see that faithless electors, which is what we're talking about, faithless electors are actually designed to be part of the system. They're not bound constitutionally to the people of the state to to who they vote for. So the argument he was making there is actually contra the original point of the Electoral College. And then, of course, in January of 2001, as the vice president and the president of the Senate, Al Gore, reading the Electoral College results. Let's listen. The whole number of the electors appointed to vote for president of the United States is 538, of which a majority is 270. George W. Bush of the state of Texas has received for President of the United States 271 votes. Al Gore of the state of Tennessee has received 266 votes. What are the lessons from that time period, if any? I think that in an alternative universe, in an alternate universe where Gore had not uh, decided to make a really strong institutionalist defense of the Electoral College, we may be having different conversations today. I actually uh, believe that his decision there to uh, endorse and get behind a very modern, almost kind of narrow view of what the Electoral College does and is designed to do, he's made 
the current system we have. Uh, so it, he made it so it sticks. In perhaps the most controversial moment in Electoral College's history, he decided to go with uh, the status quo. And he would have probably had a pretty good legal case and a, and a good public moral case to go against it. And uh, now I think it's uh, the fact that we can look at a future in which it's likely that presidents will lose a popular vote and still continue to win. Uh, that's almost the inevitable result of that uh, stance. And as you look at 2016, an even bigger vote margin difference because Hillary Clinton winning with more than three million votes and yet losing the Electoral College vote. So this pattern seems to be continuing, and one wonders where it's going to go next. Yeah, population shifts are basically going to any Republican president, for the most part, if they win by the standard Republican map at this point, uh, will likely do it at a very small popular vote margin if there's a super unpopular Democratic candidate, or will do it uh, losing some percentage of the popular vote. It's just the way that people are moving. More and more folks are moving to the South and West. They are become, the, the country itself is becoming more urban. And so you're going to see uh, as urban votes become less and less sort of... Uh, represented in the Electoral College, it's going to give much more vote power to states like Wyoming that are already super overrepresented. It's going to give much more power to them, and those states are Republican. And so Republicans, just by virtue of the map that they have to pick up in order to win, uh, in the future, this is probably going to be the norm. I want to come back to the history of the Electoral College vote in just a moment, Van Newkirk, but it's also an issue on the campaign trail. Senator Elizabeth Warren running for president, proclaiming that every vote should count, and we're hearing that from other Democratic candidates. So this is a rallying cry in 2020. Yeah, actually, if you look at the big issues that have come up on the Democrat side, we're talking Medicare for all, we're talking the Green New Deal, we're talking all these really disparate views on climate change, education, et cetera, et cetera. The one that seems to be most unifying, aside from, I guess, voting rights, and I guess this is part of voting rights, is the Electoral College. Lots and lots of Democratic candidates are going out there now and saying, uh, you know, maybe we should take a second look at the Electoral College and think about what it's designed to do, what it does, and how it, um, I think they're, in thinking about voting rights, they're looking more at the principle of one person, one vote, and really re-examining if the Electoral College allows for that. And lots of them are coming to the conclusion that it doesn't. And Van Newkirk, more on our conversation. We should remind our audience that your work is available online at theatlantic.com. But in just a moment, we will have a conversation with Professor Alex Kesar. He teaches at Harvard University, has written a piece available online at newsweek.com. And accompanying his piece is this one-minute video. When the people of America cast their votes in the presidential election, they're actually voting for a group of people called electors, who are usually party leaders or members. A total of 538 electors form the Electoral College. But what is the Electoral College? In its simplest form, the Electoral College is a group of officials appointed by each state to formally elect the President and Vice President of the United States. The number each state gets is equal to its total number of senators and representatives in Congress. In all but two states, electoral votes are winner-takes-all. In Maine and Nebraska, two electoral votes are allocated to the state and one vote to each congressional district. The candidate who wins 270 votes or more wins the presidency. In the 2016 election, although Hillary Clinton won the popular vote, 
Donald Trump was elected president as he received 306 electoral votes to Clinton's 232. That video is available online at Newsweek.com. And joining us from Cambridge, Massachusetts, is Alex Kazar. He is a professor of history and social policy at Harvard University. And his new book, Why Do We Still Have the Electoral College? So let me begin with that question. What's your answer? What have you found? Um, I, you know, I, I, I can't give you a, uh, you know, a one-sentence answer, which is why I had to write a book. Um, it it depends on the period. I mean, the basic story is that the Electoral College has been severely criticized and very unpopular in some quarters since roughly 10 years after the Constitution was written. And there have been many, many hundreds of attempts to pass constitutional amendments to change it. One issue in the 19th century, but not in the 20th, had to do with uh, – differences in opinion between or differences in interest between small states and large states. Um, From the late 19th century through much of the 20th century, um, one would have to say that the the leading uh, source of resistance to electoral college reform has come from states in the South uh, for reasons that had a lot to do with race. In researching this book, did you come across what the founders might have envisioned and what we've seen since then in which the popular vote did not reflect the will of the people and you had basically minority presidents winning the electoral vote but not the popular vote, as we saw with the election of Donald Trump, George W. Bush, and others? I don't think that the founding fathers envisioned that, but frankly, they didn't envision very much. You know, the the Electoral College scheme was adopted at the last minute at the Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia. They um, it it was a sloppy piece of work. They you know, they they couldn't come to an agreement. The the framers went on vacation for it was in for a week, leaving a committee to deal with it. And the committee came up with this basic idea. And I think that it's safe to say the framers did not know how it would work. I mean, one clear piece of evidence uh, for that is that the country was obliged to amend the Constitution within 15 years uh, to creating the 12th Amendment, uh, saying that electors would have to distinguish their votes for president from their votes for vice president something they had not done and which had caused a crisis. So I don't think the Founding Fathers had had much of a view at all about how this would work. And based on our research, it appears the last time we came close to changing the Electoral College was in the late 1960s, led in part by the now late Senator Birch Bayh, Democrat from Indiana. He was asked about this. Let's listen and come back and get your perspective. Senator Bayh, I understand your subcommittee on constitutional amendments has recently concluded hearings on electoral college reform. What action do you believe will now be taken on direct popular elections? Well, it's always exceptionally difficult to amend the Constitution. I found that out when we were working with the 25th Amendment, which I introduced, and then that was almost three and a half years later before it became a part of the Constitution. I think it's fair to say that we have a better chance today to get this revision in our electoral process than we've ever had before. I think most people are aware that the present system is dangerous, it's outdated, it's archaic, it's uh, it's one that needs to be revised and made responsive to the needs of today's uh, electoral problems. In my judgment, 
reform should meet a three-point criteria. I think the people should be personally involved. I think everybody's vote should count the same. And I think uh, in the final analysis, the man who wins is the man uh, who gets the most votes. And there's only one proposal, that's the one that I've made, that's been endorsed by the Bar Association, the Chamber of Commerce, all the labor organizations. And let the people directly vote for their president the same way they vote for all other officials. That from a 1969 interview with the Democratic Senator Birch by Indiana, Professor Kesar, explain what happened. Well, what, what, ha what happened was that um, Bai and a number of his colleagues, starting in about 1965 or 1966, began promoting the idea of a national popular vote, which had been, before the mid-20th century, it had been regarded as something of a fringe idea for presidential elections. But it, it began to gain support. This is an era, this is an era of democratization in the United States. This is an era of the Voting Rights Act and of a series of court decisions um, and pieces of legislation and constitutional amendments to uh, deepen the democracy of American institutions. Um, so the idea gained steam in the late 1960s. Um, a constitutional amendment was to do this was approved by the House of Representatives in 1969 by something as an 80, roughly 82, 83 percent vote, which is extraordinary to get to get the House to vote 82 or 83 percent on anything. And this was on a constitutional amendment. Uh, there was then a the vote in the Senate was then delayed for a critical year, in in my view. Um, Bai and his uh, allies had a lot of support. They always had more than 50 senators behind them. But part of what happened in the ensuing year uh, was that the opposition mobilized itself, and there was a series of events that deepened tensions between northern liberals and southern Democrats. Um, these include the renewal of the Voting Rights Act in the spring of 1970, and before that, some nasty battles over Southern nominees to the Supreme Court. Um, and those nominees were both rejected uh, by the Senate Judiciary Committee. So those tensions were high, and what happened in the end, in September of 1970, uh, was that opponents of the Bayh Amendment mounted a filibuster uh, to prevent the votes up or down from being taken. Um, and th there were a couple of votes in the Senate to break the filibuster, to end it, to invoke closure. And those votes got only 55, 56 uh, supporters, and they needed uh, 60 or more. So what happened was that the constitutional amendment failed by really the votes of about, you know, of a handful, four or five senators uh, that might have passed it in the Senate and then sent it to the states for ratification. Professor Kesar, we began our conversation with Van Newkirk. He's been following this story for The Atlantic. He wants to join in with a question or two. How you doing, Professor Kesar? I'm doing just fine. Yourself? I'm doing well. 
So my question here, when you mention uh, the failure of this Electoral College reform, we're talking about uh, the, the, the subtext here, the context here is about the president uh, appointing Supreme Court nominees who were, who were rejected in the Senate. The Senate, through a filibuster after waiting for a very long time, uh, basically kills the bill. We're talking the three main pieces of government that conservatives often tend to uh, view as the most important parts, the one that slow, the ones that slow the system down. Uh, would you say that that outcome, the maintenance of those systems, is what the founders intended? Or are you of the uh, studied opinion, studied uh, analysis that they didn't quite know this was going to happen at all? Um, I'm more of the opinion that they didn't quite envision that this could happen at all. They did. I mean, if one looks, you know, in in one area, they did insert into the Constitution a provision that the Constitution could be amended. So clearly they saw that this could be changed. But they also made it very difficult. It's a very high bar, as Bai mentioned um, in that clip that was presented. It's a very high bar to pass a constitutional amendment. You need two-thirds of each chamber of Congress and three-quarters of the states. So, I, you know, I, I think that they saw that that amendment process was one which would have usually a number of slowdown features. And you mentioned race. Uh, yeah. Can you tell us why race is so salient in this conversation? Sure. Um, the short version, and, <laughs> you know, and, and, and my book will be out in about six months, I should mention that, and that has the complete version. But the short version of this is that, um, as long as African-Americans were disenfranchised in the South, and let's say that's roughly the period from 1890 well into the 1960s and the late 1960s, um, the, the white South um, benefited from the Electoral College because, in effect, states received their electoral votes according to the size of the total population, which was independent of the number of voters, if you had switched to a national popular vote, um, then uh, the system would have worked out differently, and the influence of southern states would have been much diminished because African Americans were disenfranchised, or they would have been under pressure to enfranchise African Americans who might have voted in a way differently than they wanted. Huh. Wow. Well, the opposition, the, the southern opposition. Uh, Southern white opposition to uh, electoral college reform is clear and unmistakable and very vivid for about a 75-year period. Last piece for me. Do you think that's a uh, – is that a history that we see originating in maybe the 19th century? I, I have the, the Compromise of 1876 on my mind right now. Um. It certainly originates uh, in in the 19th century – um, I don't think it has – I mean, it certainly has to do with the Compromise of 1876 because that basically leaves the South to Southerners and doesn't impose – you know, doesn't keep troops there who could enforce the constitutional right of African Americans to vote. So in that sense, it does trace to what happened uh, as part of the, the crisis around the 1876 election. So in that, in that case, yes, it is related to that. You start to see – this position, this anti-reform position materialized in the South by the 1880s or 1890s. 
And one final question for you, Professor Kesar. In today's current political environment, do you see any appetite to change the Electoral College? I see an enormous appetite to change the Electoral College, but what I also see is a kind of blanket Republican opposition to reform, which is, this is new, by the way. Republicans were not always opposed to Electoral College reform, and rarely was it a completely partisan issue. But for the last 30 or 40 years, it has been a partisan issue. And I think Republicans now strongly believe that the Electoral College advantages them, and thus they have no desire to uh, to permit reform. So I think there's a huge appetite and a very large uh, political force that will continue to try to block it. We look forward to your forthcoming book, Why Do We Still Have the Electoral College? Alex Kazar is joining us from Cambridge, Massachusetts. Thanks for being part of this conversation. Thank you for having me. We continue our conversation here in our studio in Washington, D.C. with Van Newkirk. He's a staff writer for The Atlantic. What's your takeaway from our conversation with Professor Kazar? So one thing I've always wondered is whether this recent opposition from Republicans to Electoral College reform is new. And Professor Kesar told us that it is, it's relatively new, that uh, it did not, it wasn't present heavily in the late 60s, and that it basically seems to be a product of this recent continuing realignment along the lines of race. And that's interesting to me. Um, as a person who's covering these other uh, set of voting rights issues, it also stemmed from the Voting Rights Act, seeing how directly they are connected to the fate of the Electoral College is a really important piece of this reporting. To that point, uh, Republican strategist Ed Goez recently talked about the Electoral College. Let's listen to his argument. Is this something that's moving around the country that you think has real punch? Not a great deal, no. And, and I've been doing this long enough that, that I've seen ebbs and flow in this, that there's periods of time where Republicans are pushing for getting rid of the Electoral College. There's times the Democrats have been pushing to get rid of it. And the bottom line is you still have to come back to it. And the arguments for keeping it are not surfacing at this point because it's not that uh, important of an issue to the voters out there. Uh, the bottom line is that our founding fathers believed very strongly in the tyranny of the majority, and they were very concerned about the tyranny of the majority. If you look at the vote that just happened in 2016, um, and you take away the advantage, the plus vote in California and New York, Hillary Clinton did not win a majority. Uh, the vote. And they, <laughs> well, if you and, take away Florida and Ohio. Well, but, but the, the point is, is what, the, what the founding fathers were very concerned about yeah. is that the majority, in a majority, would get too um, uh, passionate about their control and too passionate about their interest and override the interest of everyday voters out there. And so they tried to break it down to a point that you'd never have a majority voting just for their interest. And that's what the Electoral College does, and it does very effectively. Those comments from Republican strategist Ed Goaz, and that really does encapsulate the argument, doesn't it? It does. Uh, but if there's anything we've learned from this conversation about the Electoral College, it's that the founders, the framers, were not a single-minded group of men. They, If they were, there'd have been no civil war. Uh, the fact that the fact was that they were 
ideologically diverse to the point of fracture. And lots of the pieces of the Constitution that we hold really dear are basically the products not of some divine compromise, but of, uh, you know, backroom deals. The same kind of stuff we decry in politics now happened then. And the Electoral College seems to be one of those pieces where, yes, we say the founders were afraid of the tyranny of the majority, but you really have to consider who was the minority uh, to the majority of the framers. And it seems the minority they were interested in protecting were the landowners, the slave-holding landowners for the most part. So that history, I think, uh, if people get behind and elect folks who want to change that, that should be within bounds. And we are having this conversation again and again because it seems to be coming closer and closer to being in bounds. I wonder, though, will it take a Democrat losing the popular vote, winning the Electoral College to see real change if people want change? It all comes down to the Senate, another one of these framer-founded institutions that slow walks uh, change on purpose. Uh, If the people that want to change the Electoral College do not control the Senate and they don't have a filibuster-proof control of the Senate, nothing is going to happen. And that is something we can pretty much say positively about any major substantive policy change in the next 50 to 100 years. And that's just the bottom line. So, uh, And when you're talking wave elections that are big enough to do that, to gain filibuster-proof majority of the Senate, we're talking any kind of uh, change is possible at that point. And my takeaway from all of this in reading your work and in talking with the Harvard professor is just how difficult it is to change the U.S. Constitution. Oh, yeah. And you look at the pace of amendments. We haven't had major amendments in decades to the Constitution. And it's very, again, it's very unlikely we probably will in the the near future. Um, The Constitution, barring these kind of once-in-a-generation waves, seems to be largely set in stone aside from Supreme Court uh, interpretations of it. Van Newkirk the second. If people want to follow you on social media, how can they do so? They can follow me on Twitter at Five Fifths and also on Instagram at Five Fifths. And that's and, where I am. And your work available also at TheAtlantic.com. Thank you very much for stopping by. We appreciate it. Thank you for having me. And a reminder, this program is available on the free C-SPAN radio app and online at C-SPAN.org. We thank you for listening.